Turn to Ephesians 5. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. These are the last few verses before we get into the section on marriage. However, we're not going to study that section until January. I always spend the uh, four weeks leading up to Christmas trying to focus our attention on Jesus' coming into the world, so we're going to do that again starting November 29th, which is just two weeks away. And for the next couple weeks, this week and next, we will be right here in verses 18 to 21. That's the plan, Lord willing, follow as I read Ephesians 5:18 to 21. This is the word of God. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Let me give a brief reminder of where we are in the letter. In the first three chapters, Paul spent most of his time reminding us of the fact that salvation is a gift. It's a work of God's free grace, and he expounded on that grace in glorious detail. In Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We didn't deserve a single one of them, uh, but He has overwhelmed us with His grace. The first three chapters are about what God has done for us. The next three are about what we are to do in response. Grace has a trajectory toward holy living. God has recreated us in Christ. He's enabled us to do what we once had no chance to do when we were dead in our sins. He has made us alive and He has enabled us to follow Him according to His commands. So the second half of Ephesians is full of commands. Now, when we think about the commands of God according to our sinful flesh, we tend to think that God's commands are burdensome. But that is not the case. The commands of God simply lead us on the path of life. They show us how to glorify God and they show us the path to further freedom and joy. They do great against our sinful desires, but that's good because, as we've seen, the life of following Christ involves putting our sin to death. It involves putting off the old self and putting on the new. So, throughout the second half of the letter, we see this pattern of putting off the old, putting on the new, uh, and we see it again here in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 5. Put off the old ways of getting drunk, that is debauchery. Instead, put on the new self and be filled with the Spirit. So the first thing we need to do is just take the first half of that first verse here at face value. Uh, Getting drunk is an outworking of the old self. It's according to the corrupted, deceitful desires. It's one of the sins that put Jesus on the cross. It has to go. There's no place for it in the body of Christ. doesn't mean we can't have a drink. Uh, but it does mean we're not permitted to get drunk. I think many in the church make light of this command, or either either that or take it too far and make rules for people that the Bible does not make, but um, maybe we make light of it. But God does not take it lightly at all. It's a damnable (laughs) offense, and we should treat it as such. So the first thing we need to do in our passage is simply take that command at face value. 
But that's not all that's going on here. We need to pick up on the contrast in verse 18. Don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So you could say it this way. Don't be under the influence of alcohol so that you lose necessary inhibitions in the fight against sin and the pursuit of holiness. Rather, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that you have all the weapons that you need to live this Christ life so that we can walk in the Spirit, so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We know that to get drunk is to lose control, whereas to be full of the Spirit is to bear the fruit of self-control. To be under the influence of alcohol regularly leads to anger, impatience, fighting. Uh, Alcohol is often a cause for infidelity in marriage, whether fueling a pornographic addiction or an adulterous affair. But to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit is to lead to bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So a little bit about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, It's important to know that all Christians, and we talked about this before in Ephesians 1, but all Christians have the Holy Spirit deposited in us. Again, Paul made that clear in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is our deposit. He is God's down payment, the guarantee of our salvation. Another way to think about it is that all Christians were baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion. That's how our eyes and our ears and our hearts were open to the truth. That said, although all Christians have the Holy Spirit deposited in us at conversion, we're not necessarily full of the Spirit at conversion. We can have fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit throughout the Christian life. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Uh, For example, the Holy Spirit was initially given for the first time to the believers in Acts chapter 2. It's not too long, Acts chapter 4, before John and Peter have just been thrown in prison uh, for proclaiming Christ. And we see the believers are scared and they pray for courage and boldness to continue to speak the Word as they ought to. And the text says that they were all filled with the Spirit. Uh, and continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. Again, in Acts 13.52, after a persecution arose against Paul and Barnabas, they head to another city, and it says that the disciples were full of the Spirit and uh, filled with joy. So, it seems that particularly in the face of fears and persecution, the Lord delights to give an extra measure of the Spirit in order to enable us to be faithful as we ought to. But... We can apply that to any area of fear or weakness. I think this should be our constant prayer. Lord, fill me with Your Holy Spirit to continue to carry on according to Your will. We are far too weak in and of ourselves to do what God has called us to do. But He has not left us to ourselves. It is right and good to pray for fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit of God. Indeed, in our passage, we're commanded uh, to pray to be filled with the Spirit. Now, turn to Colossians 3, just two short books past Ephesians. I want to show you a parallel passage in Colossians, parallel to our passage in Ephesians, so that we can better understand this call to be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's very similar to what Paul said in the Ephesians passage, uh, except where in Ephesians he said, be filled with the Spirit. Here in Colossians he said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But then the subsequent actions that follow those things are very similar. Worshiping God, giving thanks, addressing one another, admonishing one another, and all those things. Now it's interesting to note that these two letters were written at the same time, and they were even carried by the same messenger on the same journey to be given to the church at Colossae and and at Ephesus. Um, Also we see in the letters the next section is the same. It's about marriage and family and all that. I'm just pointing out that it's safe to assume that Paul had the same thing in mind for these congregations. He's essentially giving them uh, the same call. But to the Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And to the Colossians, he says, let the Word dwell in you richly. Now, those aren't exactly the same thing, but they're closely related. And I think we see here that they're very closely related in the mind of Paul. Uh, After all, the Spirit wrote the Word. And Jesus referred to Him as the Spirit of truth. And so they go together. What we see is the primacy of the Word in the operations of the Spirit. And it's safe to say that one of the best ways to heed this command to be filled with the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ, the Word of God, dwell in us richly. Uh, The Spirit-filled life is a life where God's Word dwells in us richly, where we're always in the Word and the Word is always getting into us We want the Word to take over us, take over the way we see and the way we think and the way we feel, the way we act. So are we talking about the intrinsic message and understanding of what Christ has done for us? Are we talking about the actual documentation, which there was not much at that point in time? I guess that's kind of a curious thing to think about for me. Sure. Okay, so ask your question again. Well, I'm saying in what John, the Word was with God, basically referring Mm -hmm. to Christ, I believe. Yeah. Is that what he's saying? Yes and yes. Uh, I mean, obviously in receiving the gospel, but there was more documentation than we might think. We did, it wasn't compiled like this, but everything that's being passed around, there are a lot of false teachings going around, and there was a system of recognizing what was truly Scripture, even New Testament Scripture, maybe they didn't call it that yet, but uh, what was truly Scripture and what was not, you know, uh, Somebody help me as my... The regular fide was like kind of the rule of faith. These are the things. This is the apostolic doctrine. And, uh, you know, well, what were the three things it had to be? Do you remember? Okay. Well, it had to be... um, It had... uh, Anyway, there was a system of... And it escapes me right now. I would have known it on a test, but that just shows that I crammed for tests. Give me about 20 seconds. Yeah, exactly. Google it real fast. Um, anyway, you know, even in Peter's letters, he is referring, there's a place, I think in Second Peter, where he's referring to Paul's teachings as Scripture. And so there was this sense of, this is the authoritative Word of God, even if we didn't have it compiled. But he's making the message in the Gospel and the Word of God. The Gospel and extended out from there, the it's Word of God. I guess it's not capitalized in this context, sure. I suppose. Yeah. Um... Now then, where was I? No, those, that was a, a good question. It just, you know, 
helped me lose my place. Um, anyway, so whether it's reading the Word or listening to the Word or seeing the Word, um, always for us to be about getting in the Word, the Word getting into us, to let it dwell in us richly, to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Now, in verses 19 to 21, we are given three applications of the Spirit-filled life. This is not an exhaustive list, but we could call these the fundamentals. Um, so, I, as an example, I grew up playing golf, and while I'm not great, uh, I can continue to play at a fairly competitive level, even though I don't play a whole lot anymore. Why is that? It's because for countless hours, when I was a kid, uh, over a period of years, I worked on the fundamentals. Now, on a couple of occasions, when <coughs> beginners have asked me for some tips, you know, they're kind of out there hacking away, and they're looking for that one thing that's just going to turn the clock and, and make it finally go and make them good. But the reality for most of them is they don't have a chance unless they change pretty much everything about the fundamentals. Their grip is bad, their stance is bad, their posture is bad, their takeaway is bad, their turn is bad. I mean, pretty much everything's bad and you're thinking, you got a lot to change. Uh, it's not hopeless, but you have to change a lot of the fundamentals in order to get where you're trying to go. It's not just golf, any sport. Why is Steph Curry going to be probably the best three-point shooter of all time? Certainly he's gifted, but it's also because he works harder than anybody at the fundamentals. The fundamentals are vitally important, and in verses 19 to 21 in Ephesians 5, we have the fundamentals of a spirit-filled life. Worship, thanksgiving, and submission to the authorities that God has put in our lives, uh, at the heart of all of which is submission to God. So I want you to turn to Romans 1, just a couple behind Ephesians if you're still new to the Bible. We're not going to cover uh, all of the fundamentals today in our passage in Ephesians, but I want to show you something real quick just to strengthen the case that these are indeed the fundamentals of a Spirit-filled life. As I read the passage from Romans 1, be looking for the fundamentals of an unbelieving sinful life. I'm going to read verses 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, for, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, so you could add to these, but I think I went back through and picked out the fundamentals of an unbelieving, sinful life are as follows. People know the truth because God has revealed Himself in the things that He's made. Uh, we can tell that there's a God by knowing another human. Where did you come from? You know, it's just it's built in. He made us. He built it in. We know the truth that there's a God, but people, we suppress the truth and disregard it. Uh, People don't honor God as God. Don't give thanks to Him. And worship the creation rather than the Creator who made it. Those are the fundamentals. And then because of those things arises particular sins that are talked about in the text, such as homosexuality, covetousness, envy, deceit, gossip, boasting, disobedience to parents, giving praise and consent to sin, uh, the, the passage calls it all forms of unrighteous God-hating. But those particular sins are downstream from the fundamental sins, which is refusal to acknowledge God, refusal to recognize the truth that God is God, the refusal to submit to Him, refusal to honor Him and thank Him and worship Him. So true repentance is not primarily concerned with the downstream sins, It is concerned with those sins, but not primarily concerned. True repentance is primarily concerned with the sin beneath the sin, with the source. So in order to get anywhere in the good and godly work of putting off the old self and putting on the new, we have to get back to the fundamentals. Repenting of our suppression of the truth. Repenting of our refusal to submit to God and to submit to the authorities that God has put in our life. Uh, Repenting of our refusal to honor Him and thank Him in all things and worship Him at all times and in all seasons and and through everything. And then on the flip side of that, living a Spirit-filled life, what does the path of repentance and faith look like? Well, the fundamentals are, as we've seen in our text, submitting to God. Embracing the truth as He defines it. Letting it dwell in us richly. Worshiping God. Giving thanks to Him always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to the authorities that He's put in our life. So, for the rest of our time today, I want to focus on verse 19. One of the fundamentals. Next week we'll be in primarily verse 20, maybe some of 21. Although we'll probably save that till after the holidays. Uh, when we start the marriage section, because the phrase in verse 21 is really the opening phrase of the next big section. In verse 21, we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then in the next many verses, Paul goes into a number of relationships where we flesh this out. Wives submitting to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. Husbands laying down their lives for their wives out of reverence for Christ. Children obeying their parents. Slaves obeying their masters, which was something that was actually going on at that time. People were slaves and they become Christians. And what do we go from here? Well, submit to your master and uh, serve them as unto the Lord. Or we could apply that to employees submitting to employers, congregation submitting to elders, etc., etc. 
We'll get into those things after the new year. For now, verse 19. One of the fundamentals of a Spirit-filled life is worship. Uh, One thing to note while we're here, there are Christians out there who say that we should only sing the Psalms in corporate worship. Uh, Some Christians that I greatly respect. If you have read the book by Rosaria that I've recommended 27 times in here, you know that she's one of them. She's coming to speak here. We love her. We celebrate the work she's doing. But she's in a denomination that believes that we should only sing the Psalms in worship. Um, I think we should sing the Psalms. You know, uh, their, their argument is God gave us a song book. And it's the Psalms. And so why would we sing anything else? I mean, that's what it is. Um, I think we should sing the song Psalms. Perhaps we should sing them more than we do. But I would also say... I would think that this verse in our passage and then the verse in Colossians, the parallel passage, would give us permission to sing outside of the Psalms in corporate worship. Um, That said, hymns and spiritual songs are not just referring to any old song that we think up. You know, I think that there are far too many Jesus is my boyfriend type songs in the broader Christian church today. I mean, I don't. I think we do a great job around here. I think there's, you know, substance and meat in the in the things that we sing here, and I love that. Uh, but turn on Caleb and every other song. I like. Listen, there's a lot of songs that we sing here that are on Caleb. Okay, for the record. But then there's a lot of Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And uh, think about what we've talked about. The fundamental command is to be filled with the Spirit. That's the main clause. And then the call to address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to the Lord. That's a participial phrase. It's connected to the main clause. It modifies it. It tells us one of the ways to go about living this Spirit-filled life. Also remember that to be filled with the Spirit is very closely related to the Word dwelling in us richly, right? So how do we go about that? Well, one of the fundamental ways that the Word dwells in us richly is we worship the Lord. The point is, if the main command is about being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word dwell in us richly, and verse 19 then further develops that, we see that the command is to worship in the Spirit according to the truth. In short, no Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs are meaty. They are directly according to the truth of God's Word. They may be more systematic in their arrangement, like pulling from here and here and here, and they're not necessarily reciting a verse, but they are true to the truth. Now, um, again, verse 19 is most likely a reference to corporate worship, though such singing is not limited to corporate worship. We can sing these things in our homes. We can sing them wherever we like. But... um, One thing to think about here is that there is more going on, uh, more than one thing going on in corporate worship. We are singing to the Lord, but we're also addressing one another. There is this building up aspect, strengthening aspect to our fellowship uh, as we sing, reminding one another uh, as we, you know, you hear someone else singing or you hear yourself singing or whatever, but reminding and strengthening and encouraging one another in the truths that we're singing. I love this aspect of worship. If you're in a congregation uh, for very long at all, and the more you involved you get, the more people you know. And, and the more people you know what's going on in their life, um, 
And it just brings an added dimension to our fellowship in Christ. So, for example, there is a uh, woman that I sit close to. We don't have assigned pews or anything, but we just happen to sit in the same place. And, you know, she uh, sits real close to me, and some months ago her mom died. And there was a hymn sung at the funeral. I was at the funeral. It was here. Um, and it was her mom's favorite hymn. And then Jim put it in the Sunday morning worship that following Sunday, and we're sitting there next to each other, and he didn't announce the reason we're doing this hymn, but it was just such a rich thing, knowing all that, and knowing what she's right in the middle of, and being right next to her, there was very much this addressing one another in singing this hymn together, uh, strengthening our fellowship. Another example is when Ben and Trisha's daughter Emily was baptized. Uh, the special music right before that, Clark sang. Um, it was a song by Shane and Shane with a John Piper quote put in there. Now, this was not done on purpose by us. I think it was done on purpose by God. But I had had a conversation with Ben some months prior about how meaningful that sermon by John Piper was to him, particularly in the very long, very difficult process of God preparing them uh, for Emily. And, and really how meaningful it was in you know, restoring his joy in the Lord. Now, I wasn't up there next to him when it was played, um, but there was this unique fellowship in the song. Just living life together, knowing one another, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's two examples, and I could name countless examples of that sort of thing. And so it's, it's just, um, there's more going on in corporate worship than, than only singing to the Lord. Um, now, in regard to singing to the Lord, worshiping the Lord, there are those that don't like the singing part of corporate worship. And there can be many reasons for this. Maybe you don't like the music. Uh, maybe you've never been a singer and, you know, not trying to start. Maybe you're embarrassed. I'm standing right next to somebody and they're going to hear me sing. Uh, but what we see in our passage is we don't have the option to bow out of the singing aspect of corporate worship. Singing to the Lord in the context of corporate worship is a fundamental to the Christian life. Uh, in fact, if we're to chase this out further in the Scriptures, we would see that God's goal in salvation is not just to save people from their sin, but His goal in salvation is to create a worshiping people, a people who have repented of the sinful fundamentals in resisting worshiping Him, and in repentance, uh, gladly worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. So in Revelation 7, we get a glimpse of the end of all time when all of God's people will be gathered together before the throne. And what are we doing? We're worshiping. The end of God's mission is worship. Singing to the Lord is a fundamental in the Christian life. And so, if you're a born-again Christian, you have a God-given call, and not only a call, I would guarantee you have a God-given desire to worship Him. Now, there may be some insecurities that we have to push through or some sins that we need to repent of, that fundamental sin of a resistance and refusal to worship God. But we don't have the option of suppressing those desires and continuing in the path of the unbelieving life 
refusing to honor and worship God. It's a command, but remember that the commands are not burdensome. The commands of God are life-giving. They lead us in how to glorify God and how to walk further and further into our freedom and our joy. Worshiping God is what we were made to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we seek to prepare our hearts to worship you this morning, uh, Lord, we recognize, I, I do, the, my fears and uh, things that have been stirred up just in regard to what's going on around the world. Um, it seems that there's nothing better that we could do than to reorient ourselves by worshiping you, thanking you, thanking you, Lord, for this great salvation that you have caught us up in, uh, thanking you for saving us. We do thank you, Lord, and, and uh, we want to worship you from the heart. I pray that you would help us to uh, repent of sin if need be, and, and uh, even just work through insecurities that we might access the fundamentals of uh, what you've called us to uh, so that our lives could be built into um, the way that you've designed them to work. Thank you for your word. I do pray that you'd give us grace and wisdom, strength, um, devotion as we seek to let it dwell in us richly. We do pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Uh, that we might better worship you and be mindful to thank you and uh, submit to you and to all of those authorities that you've put in our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, we got a minute for questions or if through research we found a better answer than was not so much. I'll come up with it. Well, three things that made... Um, like an authoritative hierarchy kind yes. of thing. Yes. Well, yeah, just there were... The apostles. I mean, like, yeah. Three things that made, it, made an apostle. And but the, they legitimized them, but as far as the three things... What were those three things? Saw Christ, um, commissioned by Christ, or viewed the resurrection. Um, yeah, saw Christ, viewed the resurrection, and commissioned by Him, I believe. Okay. I think I'm thinking about the the teaching had to be apostolic, had to be in accordance with everything. The apostles were still alive. They're all converging and saying, hey, this is, you know, this is what's true, this is what's not. So these letters had to be, in order to be accepted as true, they had to be in accordance with apostolic doctrine. And there were a couple other things, but anyway. All right. Anyone else have any thoughts or questions about other things we talked about? The reason why I say that is I don't feel like our church values it by just our posture of worship. Mm. There's people, ushers in the back, just chit chat and talk mm. about golf. Now, granted, I sit in the back row because I have very distracted children. Yeah. And so we're a part of it. My yeah. children don't value worship. But um, <coughs> part of discipleship. How we, how yeah. we change the tone. I thought, I'm not asking people to raise their hands or yeah. do anything, whatever. But it, to me, it's not a very reverent time. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of distraction. People coming in and out, going and grabbing coffee, people talking <clears> in the back. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have a solution. I guess I'm just wondering: is it something that the church has concerns for? Or is everybody mm-hmm. just? 
No, that's a great question. Yes. Um, and in fact, those kinds of conversations happen uh, pretty regularly, you know, particularly for those that are in leadership and worship and that sort of thing. But that, you know, uh, maybe I'll come back and mention some of this later. I was struck, I was reading the Old Testament recently when they're setting up worship in the temple and all that. I mean, the, uh, the singers and the music ministers are called to a, pro- it's, it describes in numerous places their role as prophetic. I mean, we would say a preaching role is a prophetic ministry. Well, the, the singing ministry <clears throat> and all that is no less. So we're going to be hushed and reverent in tone as we listen to the preaching. Why wouldn't we be equally uh, hushed and reverent and focused in the singing? I share that. Uh, we've talked about that on staff numerous times. There have been conversations, uh, but I would encourage you to have those conversations too. Just, it's really distracting. I like you guys a lot, you know, no thing. But if you're going to. That's good. I mean. I'll leave it quiet, please. Well, I would even say to your point, like when you move from doing announcements at the very beginning and then beginning worship and it carrying through all the way until the end, moving. The announcements to the middle so that people wouldn't miss it. I think maybe I don't know if that has changed or affected the conversations or not. But people finding that time to chit chat during announcements and then knowing the music is coming begins it because then you're stopping in the middle of music, you're having announcements, then you're saying hello, and then you're going back to music. It I see both sides of it. I yeah, guess. well, I think, I think it kind of breaks things up a little bit. Uh, it's um, I think. You know, there's the pragmatic issue of wanting people to hear the announcements. Uh, yeah. Also, you don't want to um, devalue the worship by, like I said, you don't want to just accept the fact that folks roll in late. That's one of the biggest frustrations I think that's out there is that uh, the, the not valuing is evidenced by the fact that people just kind of yeah. kind of mill about and come on in. And, and I think they've grappled with what to do about ordering the worship service and all kinds of things. We even have a shot clock. Does anyone know that we have a shot clock at the information desk, counting down to to the time that worship starts? Maybe we should add noise and like the buzzer, you know. But uh, yeah, I think it's just a battle that's going to continue. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just you know in Sunday school mentioning to folks, hey, yeah, might consider trying to come on come on into the worship service if you really value worship. You know that that would be one way to encourage our people. You know, something, and some of you folks that went to Kirby Woods could tell me, but Landon used that church as an example because he loved that there was this posture of reverence in their worship, and people would be there 15, 20 minutes before the service, and there was this anticipation that worship is about to begin. Now, I don't think that the difference in our church is so much a matter of heart problems, though there are heart problems, but even just structure problems... Kirby Woods, as I'm aware, has one worship service and always did. And so in order to get a seat, you better be there 15 minutes early. And that helped the reverence, focus, tension. You've got 20 minutes to talk. Now zip it, you know, and here we are. The big difference was they tended to talk in there, whereas we tend to stay out in the hall and talk, and then we're like, oh, gosh, we've got to get away. Right. And then there, it's kind of like they start doing music, and you just quit talking because at that point, you know, you're not, you're right. That was the difference. Well, I can just, and we don't always do this well, but uh, always try to have 
15 minutes or so if you take it on the front end of class to talk and then 15 minutes or so on the back end before the worship starts. But we, we can make an effort to change some of those things and even to have some of those conversations. I don't think those... I don't, I don't think those guys would be uh, pushed back on that, you know. And it's, you know, because some of them, they do have to take up the money and go count it, and they're going to be doing other things, but I think it's a good point. And I do think there's a concern. We, I've been a part of many discussions, and I'm sure I've just only been a part of a fraction of the ones that have been had. So, anyone else? Um, I know for a while our discussion for years around here was um, – Nobody's late for work. Nobody's late for their kids' ball game, but we're late here, um, and I'm the same way. If you, show up, if you show up five minutes early, though, it's a ghost town around here. So yeah. There's nobody to talk to. If you true. show up five minutes or you know, even just five minutes. Unless early. you all do. And that's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so some of the you know, no, like yeah. they were saying that Kirby was everybody showed up early, right? Because that's when you hung out and talked, right? I mean, that was just an understood thing. Yeah. Um, and and, then, go and ahead. he he just said. I don't know how else to put it, but around here, Jimmy Young is the show. He's the main event. Mm-hmm. People are fine coming in, listening to him, leaving. Mm-hmm. Never going to Sunday school, never listening to worship. That's just kind of the tone. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's... Yeah, that's and so, and I have great uh, respect and <clears throat> gladly follow the leadership of Dr. Young, but one of the things that we ought to seek to combat is that. Yeah. Because... The singing is a prophetic part of the ministry where we are not only singing to the Lord, but speaking to one another and addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's valuable. It, just as valuable as any teaching and preaching that we're going to get. It's, they're held the same biblically. And so um, we don't need to devalue those things. I think we, you know, all of us or most of us really value our, our pastor. And I agree, there is some sense of that culture, but... That's not the case. And some people are more musical than others, but regardless, you know, um, this is part of the way that we worship the Lord together. I, would, I think to the extent that we as a congregation and regular tenders um, take that seriously is the extent to which visitors and non-believers will see that Jimmy Hunt's not the show for this church. That's right. Um, God's the show, and when we take worship seriously and place it where it should be in our hearts and interactions uh, that's a testament I think to mm-hmm. other people that's good hey so you have nine to ten minutes to uh, <laughs> converse and head that way and uh, let's go worship together <laughs>